0: From New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, you're listening to Check This Out, a new literary series where we dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you over the next few weeks. This is a brand new show. It's a partnership between the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, and NHPR. And we are very, very excited to be bringing this to you. If you miss an episode or want to hear more, you can go to nhpr.org or thehow.org and download every episode as a podcast. Joining me today on the show is Ayanna Mathis, author of the new novel, The Unsettled. You may know Ayanna from her debut novel, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. Published 11 years ago, That first novel was a big success. It was even named an Oprah book club pick. It has taken her 11 years to publish this next novel, and it was worth the wait. It's a mother, daughter, son story that braids two narratives, one from the South and one from the North. In the North, Mathis plunges her readers into the horrors of life at the cockroach-infested Glen Avenue family shelter in 1985 Philadelphia. In the South, she takes us to the tiny town of Bonaparte, Alabama, which is a decaying mess but used to be a beacon of Black freedom and self-determination. She shows the fight to save that town from rapidly encroaching white developers. Towards the end, her characters from both the North and the South are all drawn to the leader of a cult-like group modeled on the real-life MOVE organization, and the ending is just as tragic. This is a gritty and beautiful novel And I am honored to have Ayanna Mathis join us today on Check This Out. Ayanna, welcome.
1: Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much to NHPR and the Howe Library for having me.
0: Your first book came out 11 years ago. And we have to start there and talk about it just for a minute because it just out right out of the, <laughs> the gates. Oprah Winfrey picked it as this book that she loved for her book club. You became a massive bestseller. You sold tons and tons of copies. And then you have the task of writing a second book. <laughs> and I said, the first question I have to ask her is, how could you write under that kind of
1: pressure? Uh, you kind of answered the question. It took 11 years. Um, it was, uh, there was a long time in which I really wasn't writing at all. I mean, part of that was just the 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 kind of noise and activity surrounding that first book um you know i mean i was on the road off and on for probably about two years so you know which are not necessarily the best conditions under which to to work on a novel um, but then after that um it was just it was a obviously an incredible blessing but it was also it was very loud and so the kind of privacy required to, to work on a novel, which is a very intimate, quiet, messy process, um, it, it felt like a little bit hijacked by all these very loud voices around the first novel. So it took me quite a while to kind of find my privacy again and to discover my own kind of discernment and assessment and judgments, You know, I mean, writing, you know, as you know, obviously you're a writer. And so, you know, there's a lot of decisions being made all the time. You're, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're deciding this is a good sentence, this is a bad sentence, this, this paragraph should go in this de- direction, what have you. And for a long time, because the reception to Hattie was so wonderful, but so loud, and so intense and so unexpected, it, it was as though my own barometers were kind of hijacked by all of these external voices. So I kind of couldn't see what I was writing. I couldn't make decisions about the work. So it took a long time for me to just find a really kind of essential privacy so that I could work again.
0: So many writers feel the pressure to publish right, to get out short stories, to have, write their name out in print as much as possible. And one thing that I love about your history of writing is, right, that your first book um, came out, that was your first piece of fiction that you ever published. And this is your second, right? You're still very much emerging. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so, I mean, how how
1: does that feel? It's a, it's a strange process and it's a strange, it's a, bit a strange trajectory, you know, um, a very fortunate one, but but definitely sort of an odd one, I think. And part of it, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm a late bloomer. So Hattie was published when I was, I can't remember if I was 39 or 40. Um, but, you know, either way. And so I, it, it is true, absolutely, that I'm emerging, but I think I also began emerging much later than than many writers do, I guess. But you
0: were writing before. You were trying to write poetry. You were writing memoir right? You were a fact checker. You were still in the writing world.
1: Yeah, very much. I mean, I I just didn't write fiction. I, you know, I wrote some fiction when I was like a kid. And then, and then I, you know, I thought for many years that I was a poet and I was going to be a poet and I wrote poetry for years. I, I didn't publish any of it, which is fortunate because it's not very good. So that's better for everyone. But, um, and so I wrote some nonfiction because, uh, I, as, I, as you mentioned, I worked in magazines for a long time uh, and I did things like that. I was working on a kind of memoir-ish sort of thing um, that, that I actually applied to grad school with. But then when I kind of tried to fictionalize it and further develop it, I discovered that it was kind of dead in the water um, and then pivoted from that. And then that's it. And then Hattie emerged, thankfully.
0: So let's dive right into the book. You give us three generations of a family. We have Duchess, Ava, and Toussaint. And uh, tell us about them. Tell us about the ju- their journey in the book.
1: So they are, Duchess is the, I'm, I'm hesitant to call her a matriarch. She wouldn't like that, but I guess she is, sort of. Um, she's a, she's an, a retired itinerant blues singer. She lives in a, a little town in Alabama called Bonaparte. That was once um, a very thriving, large settlement of, of Black people, an independent settlement that sort of started probably sometime um, during the reconstruction officially, but would have existed before that in my mind. And it was once, you know, about 10,000 acres. They cooperative farmed. It was a very thriving, successful place. But when we meet it in the novel, which is set in the 80s, the mid-80s, it has been reduced to quite literally five septuagenarians and octogenarians who are kind of alone on this land. They've lost a lot of it, 90% of it probably. Um, and they're trying to sort of hold down these remaining acres as a legacy for their children and in homage to this this Bonaparte place's grand history. So that's that's Duchess. And then her daughter is Ava. Ava, like many of, well, I guess pretty much all of the the children of the Duchess's generation, left. Um, Again, sort of references to the Great Migration that you gestured towards when we began talking. She's gone. She left. She sort of wanders around a little bit for a while and ends up settling in Philadelphia. And when she's there, uh, various... Things happen, she meets a man, she falls in love, she has a baby, they split up. Um, you know, she has a marriage that fails. She's a searcher, she's a seeker. She's looking for something she can't quite name. Probably what it is, is this sort of grandeur and independence and uh, kind of incredible legacy of the place that she left, which is Bonaparte. And she's looking for that and she's looking for something to believe in. But she never really quite finds it until she does, which happens in the book. <laughs> I, I won't talk too much about it to avoid spoilers. In any case, the third of these main characters is her son, Toussaint. Uh, when we meet him, he's 10 years old and he is. Um, he's a pretty strong kid, very introspective, very perceptive, kind of precocious. Um, and finds himself really kind of in the middle of his mother's mistakes um, and and sort of having to deal a lot with his mother's mistakes.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is Ayana Mathis, and we are talking about her new novel, The Unsettled. Okay, so we are going to dive right into the novel and talk about the opening where you present Ava and Toussaint. They are checking into a shelter, Would you mind reading that for us?
1: Happy to. Then she wrote, last night, me and Toussaint were sitting on a bunch in a bus shelter across the street from a lady's house out in the Northeast. She had a pitcher of iced tea on her table. It was dark in the bus shelter. Then the street light came on over us, and we were lit up. That woman in her kitchen saw us, so I didn't think we should stay there. And we were so tired. I spent nearly all the money on a motel. In the morning, my son asked me where we'd go after we left there. Are we going to spend the night again here? Is what he said. I got him an egg sandwich at the McDonald's down the street. We sat in the air conditioning and watched some kids on the slide in the play place. I'd put aside enough for bus fare so that no matter what, we could get somewhere. We used the bus fare and came here on the L
0: very powerful. So then you you set the scene, they're checking into a shelter, but also you're giving this idea of what am I leaving behind for my child and for the future generations? And we see Duchess also tries recording and writing out her history, right, so that people know what's going to happen. So um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that need to leave a record, right, to show your mark for where you are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, it's interesting one of the things that I I was thinking about in this novel was was actually this notion of how to tell a story when there is no accurate record. Right? So so there you know Ava has her version of things. Duchess has her version of things. Both of those versions are compromised for various reasons, right? For their their personalities and their proclivities also for a lack of a kind of accurate historical record, quote unquote, right? And then the other person is a kid. <laughs> so so, so his, his understanding of things is also necessarily compromised simply by virtue of the fact that he can't have all the facts because he's 10. So I was really interested in how to tell a story in which there is no accurate record, per se. And it's, it's something that, that resonates with me in my own life and my own experience. And I think probably with many people, right? If you were to go to any family, especially if there are siblings, and you were to say, you know, what happened? Do you remember what happened when Uncle so-and-so threw the turkey out the window at Thanksgiving in 1999? And everyone would have a different version of that story. So, so it's kind of playing around with that notion. And wanting to, these characters really wanting to somehow understand what has happened to them and what has happened to their lives and what happened in the history of the place that they come from and, and how to use those things as a roadmap to move forward, to create a future. But then the problem is there is no, there is no reliable record. So they're in a pickle in that way. So 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 I'm 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 definitely playing around with that. And the other thing I think that I'm playing around with is that these are these are black people obviously. These are black characters. They're poor black characters and they're poor black characters who also live and have chosen to live in ways that are largely unconventional, unremarked, unmapped and not historicized. So I'm also kind of playing around with the notion of of the idea that there are histories that exist that, that, that are not recorded. They might have deserved to be recorded, certainly they did, but there is no record of them or the record is really small or it's flawed or it's incredibly partial. So these folks also are people who have to create their path forward through terrain that is often unremarked and overlooked. So there's, so there's sort of multiple levels in which I'm thinking about a record or a history and how that might be missing.
0: But you're also opening by showing us Ava at one of the lowest points of her life. She is going into a shelter. And you show us that this entire process is just dehumanizing. And on the surface, you have these white women who look like, you know, they're supposed to be there to help and give her a hand. And yet every aspect just reminds her how terrible this is. Right. And and that she is not being treated as the human that she is. Can you talk about writing that? How hard was that? And how did you how did you write that?
1: Um, well, it, I mean, it t- took a few years, actually. Um, those those shelter scenes were really difficult to write, um, in part because. A lot of the settings in this book, they're not settings with which a readership would necessarily be familiar, right? Like we, you know, if I set a book in, you know, 1989 in New York City, let's say, right? We all have some kind of bonfire of the vanities notion of what that would look like, right? Now, obviously, my book might play with something like that and and make it my own. But the point is, there's something there that people are drawing from. A family shelter is not necessarily a place that people have anything to draw from. So part of the difficulty there was making this setting believable and real and dynamic and almost kind of feeling like I had to build it from the ground up so that readers could enter into it because they may not have any sort of model or template for that in their minds. Or the one that they might have might not at all be what I wanted it to be. That is, I think, we probably have a lot of judgments very often about about homelessness, about shelters, about that whole kind of realm of thing. And I was really, very interested in subverting a little little bit, not 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 making it a lovely pleasant place. It certainly is not. But making it a place in which perhaps we have to check our judgments a little bit and enter into it on the terms that the book presents it rather than necessarily bringing a whole lot of kind of preloaded judgments. Um, and I think too, you know, what's interesting is that there are, in my mind, many of those characters that are, that are sort of working in the shelter, around the shelter, some of them I think might be white in the intake center, but I think once they get to the shelter, I, I don't think that they are. I think like Miss Simmons is another character. She's this sort of... I don't know, evil social worker, <laughs> she's, she's, um, she's not really evil, She's but she's, she's, well, she's very judgy, <laughs> she, she, she's very judgy, um, and she, she very purposely is created as a Black character, you know, I, I want there to be these, I don't want monoliths of Blackness that I'm always writing against that.
0: I love that, the monolith of Blackness, what does that mean?
1: Uh, This idea that 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 black people somehow all have the same history or the same, you know, a kind of flattening of black people into something that is that doesn't have textures, that doesn't have nuance, that doesn't have vast differences. That doesn't take into the account that there are some black people are poor and some black people are rich and some black people are working class and some black people are stupid and some black people are geniuses and some black people are amazing people and some black people are horrible people. You know, just the basic humanity that we grant everyone else, that there's an enormous variation in people. Um, And I think very often because we live, you know, in a racist country with a racist legacy, black people tend to be flattened into a series of. Of um, of tropes almost, um, and are seen to be acting in and out of a history that also is flattened. So when I say a monolith of blackness, that's what I mean. This a sort of saming, I guess.
0: All right. We're going to be right back. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Ayana Mathis, and we are talking about her new novel, her second book, The Unsettled. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Diana Mathis, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about her new novel, The Unsettled. So we were just talking about the opening of the book where we see Eva and Toussaint walking into the shelter, a family shelter in Philadelphia. And we have a whole other section of the book that is dedicated to Eva's mother, Duchess, and she is down in Bonaparte, Alabama. So can you tell us about that section of the book and, and that town of Bonaparte?
1: Bonaparte, Alabama is um, a fictional place entirely, inspired by an actual place in some ways uh, called Gee's Bend which um is on a little tiny place on a bend in the alabama river if folks have heard of Gee's bend it's probably because some very very famous quilts come from there a couple of them are are in the smithsonian as we speak Gee's bend was um originally populated well originally populated by native people of course uh which is something that is gestured towards quite frequently in the book um but then um, enslaved people were brought there, etc. cetera. Um, plantations established, but, um, by the late 1800s, um, it had become something of a more independent kind of place. Um, if you fast forward in its history, in the 1930s, there was a lot of intervention from the WPA and the WPA was very interested in rescuing. I did air quotes, rescuing people from rural poverty. And they did a bunch of land grants. And this place, Gee's Bend, was a place that received these um, parcels of land that they'd already been living on and farming for many years. But in any case, uh, they bought them for a very small amount of money and uh, very low interest on those loans. So that's a little bit of a history, uh, which I mentioned, not just because of Bonaparte, because I think it's also an important history in the kind of understanding of rural black people and rural black farming and rural black ownership, which is a, a rural black land ownership, I should say, which is a really important part of this book. Um, so that's part of Bonaparte's inspiration. The other part is there were really all of these fascinating um, black settlements, townships, etc., that cropped up all over the South during the Reconstruction after the Civil War. Most of them are long gone but there were many, there are a few that still exist. There's a place called Mountain Bayou in Mississippi. There's a fascinating place called the Kingdom of the Happy Land that was on the North South Carolina border. Um, And these places thrived, you know, they, many of them had kind of cooperative models, you know, they farmed, they pooled their resources, they did all sorts of things, but then they were threatened largely by things that happened at the end of the reconstruction, you know, increased terrorism against black people, capitalism changing, you know, agricultural, the agricultural landscape changing. And so many of them don't exist anymore. So Bonaparte in many ways is um, a sort of amalgam of these historical settlements and, um, and, and black townships at the same time that it is also kind of mythological in this book. It, um, it's a spiritual homeland and an extant place. But it is also, you know, there are guards in the trees. There's one way in by land and one way in by water. So it is also a little bit, um, it has mythological elements.
0: So we see Duchess is in Bonaparte, Alabama. And you touched on one of the questions that I really wanted to talk to you about, which is what does it mean to own land, right? You mentioned that people in Bonaparte had already been living there for generations, right? And yet suddenly they're given a deed, um, you know, and they're the gestures towards the, um, you know, the people who had been living there before them even, right? So what does it mean to own land? All of a sudden you have a piece of paper that says this is yours, but if you've already been there for 60 years, do you own the land? I just kept asking that question. So how did you think about that as you were writing this?
1: I'm so glad that you asked the question now and that that question was coming up in your mind, I don't think I know the answer. And I think in many ways, the book is, or these parts of the book in any case are raised to kind of raise that question and, and poke at it a little bit because it's complicated, right? These people in, in Bonaparte, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the history of a place like Gee's Ben, but in Bonaparte, the history is similar, but a little bit different. I mean, they, they would have been living there since well before the Civil War. Um, its mythical history is that what happens is that is that none of the people who attempt to make successful plantations live, basically. So so they so so all of these kind of white plantation owners die in very strange, mysterious circumstances. Not that they're murdered by anyone in Bonaparte. It's sort of like the universe kills them, and then so these folks end up kind of living very independently. Um, But you know, there's complications there. So they've been living on this land for yeah, something like 60 years before the government intervenes and gives them these deeds. So what does that mean? I think it probably means that they are something like custodians of that land. And I think in some ways they understand themselves as custodians of that land. And they also understand that it is not their land. It's not their land. It wasn't the white settlers land either. It was the native tribes that lived there before them. It was their land. And, but the complication is if you are an enslaved person brought to this land that is not your land, you have no option. Like, where are they gonna go? You know, they're, they're not gonna go back to wherever it is that they were stolen from. So they have to sort of, you know, it's, it's almost as though a kind of a great evil begets a bunch of very compromised choices. So the, the, the only choice that is left is that, well, we have to stay here and if we can stay here, this is our protection. If we, quote unquote, own this land, we can be independent. We are a little bit, free, you know, because these people have this land through Jim Crow, through all of this period, and they are safer, freer, um, and more secure because they have the land. So they have no choice but to keep it. But that choice is compromised because it's not theirs in the first place. You bring
0: in ownership in the South, in Bonaparte, and you also bring it up in Philadelphia when Cass right, takes the deed um, for the house, right, for Ark, um, later in the book. So, it, but it, so the question is, right: there's ownership. You bring it up twice. In the North, in Philadelphia, and in the South, in Bonaparte. And who owns it? And how do you steal the land? And it seems ridiculous the way you lay it out. It's like, I stole it because I took this piece of paper. And I put my name on it.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, that legacies are reduced to these flimsy little things that could burn up in a fire and in fact probably do is uh, pretty astounding.
0: Yeah, but you pointed it out beautifully and in a way that I'm sitting there saying this is ridiculous. And yet it's so important to the characters that they have these deeds.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a difference. It's, It's interesting you bring this up. I think that there's also a little bit of a separation between what the land itself means to these people and how they understand it and how they understand what it might mean to them and for them. And on the other hand, the sort of government and state procedures that um that lend some kind of credibility or legitimacy to them right which is the piece of paper and I think that they really think that the piece of paper is ridiculous I think they all kind of think these pieces of paper are stupid and the 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 systems that make it such that we have to have these pieces of paper to be free are in any case aligned against us which they are and so the important thing is what you do with the place that you are and how you preserve it and how you hold on to it and how you give it to a next generation. And unfortunately, the way to be able to do that is this series of these ridiculous pieces of paper that are sort of a symbol of all of the systems that would rather that we not have any of this in the first place.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Baronbaum. My guest today is Ayanna Mathis, and you are listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about the brand new novel, The Unsettled. So I want to move on from talking about land and ownership and this idea of a piece of paper being right the, the sort of crowning achievement um, and talk about the women themselves. So Ava and her mother, Duchess, we have um, mental illness we see with both of them. We see the mother, uh, Duchess, goes into this huge depression. She's not getting out of bed after her husband uh, is killed. And we see Ava also, um, you know, has a hard time getting out of bed for different reasons. But both of them, right, are go through these periods of depression, and they have the children that are left sitting on the side saying, you know, please wake up, please get up, please get up. And it was so moving. Um, and I just wanted to ask you to please talk about writing those.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's an, I didn't realize, you know, themes kind of emerge in some ways as you write, you know, and, and there are both Duchess and Ava at one point say something to the effect of, you know, why is it that some woman always ends up lying down in a bed and can't get up? You know, why, why does that happen? Why does that happen to us? Um, um, And I think, you know, in, in the case of both of those characters, there is this moment in which life has become so incredibly overwhelming that they just kind of can't anymore i just can't one more day there's a i think ava says that at some point i just can't one more day and and these are people who understand that they have children and so they're not going to they're not going to commit suicide right like that's not an option but they are also just sort of unable to continue and and i should say too you know i, I read a great deal of tony morrison and and so some of that that notion of women who have just been through so much that either they choose to just opt out you know by just taking to their beds or kind of can't continue you know that's something that is very prevalent um in Toni Morrison's beloved, um, you know, b- the one of the main characters, Baby Suggs, at a certain point, just can't do it anymore. And she takes to her bed and she, she asks the other characters to bring her little bits of fabric that are colored, because all she wants in the last years of her life are, are bits of color. So she'll say things like, bring me some purple, you know, bring me some red. Um, and then at a certain point, her daughter-in-law, Setha, the other main character in the book, also... Finds herself so overwhelmed by what has happened to her that she too lies down. Satha, however, gets up um, and is able to get up. And so that 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 notion of of a kind of historical psychological pressure that is so great that you just kind of can't anymore um, that's very prevalent in the book and and is also very much an homage and is something that's talked about a lot in Toni Morrison, who's one of my literary heroes
0: mine too she is unbelievable but you have duchess has um you know her pain is invisible um ava on the other hand she the first time we really see her in bed is after she's been beaten she has a huge bruise right she's physical manifestation of the pain and it's she's concussed she's confused and i just kept getting so angry at everyone around her that they weren't saying, what's wrong? Are you OK? Right? They just keep mm-hmm. expecting her to just get up, even though you see the physical bruise. right? Mm-hmm. So I-, I wanted to ask you why you added that bruise and
1: how everyone around her was still ignoring her, ignoring the bruise. Um, so the bruise is, I'll, I'll answer the second part of the question first. I think that, that part of what I'm wanting to get at there, with, with the ways in which folks just ignore everybody around <laughs> her, just kind of ignores the fact that this woman is clearly injured is about the kind of dehumanization of people who who are poor in general of black women also um, and particularly people who have gotten to the point where their networks have become so frayed that they find themselves in a shelter and when we find ourselves in the shelter then there's a whole set of expectation well maybe they're drug addicts well of course a person who brought is in a shelter you know they prob- there's probably domestic abuse there's probably this there's probably that and so this this kind of ignoring the clear pain that this woman is in i think is coming from a set of expectations about well that's what just happens to people like that or that's just what happens to people in this situation and so everyone just kind of goes on as if it weren't because that's just what's expected. That's what happens to those kind of people. So so I'm definitely pushing against that a little bit.
0: And this is where I think you really got to the theme, one of the themes that I picked up on, which is, why didn't someone go to her and say, how can I help you? Instead, everyone's saying, this is what you need. This is what you need to do. Get out of bed. Go to the interview. Right. Get out of the shelter. Make sure you're right, telling or this is how you pull yourself up, as opposed to, how can I meet you where you are and give you what you need. And it just felt like this massive hole in the system that you're pointing out and with
1: people who are ostensibly trying to help. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that a, a lot of this book is, first and foremost, it's about its, about its characters um, and their psychology and what happens to them. But I think it also is really, really interested in systems. So it's interested in this sort of system that is, as you pointed out, is supposed to be helping, but doesn't much, you know? <laughs> um, or or in any case, its protocols are arise out of the fact that it does not necessarily see the people it's meant to help as fully human, right? Like, oh, well, flawed, you are defective in very, very intense and serious ways and so what we're going to do is tell you exactly what you're supposed to do and you're supposed to do that no matter what despite your circumstance how you feel what you're going through that someone that you have a big bruise on your face and a concussion you know all of these sorts of things and so um the book is very much interested in systems and then and then of course which i imagine we'll get into in a little bit it's also interested in other parts of systems like police and authorities and violence and, and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's, it's very interested in the ways in which systems fail Black people and also the ways systems fail poor people. Because I think it's very important to always keep in mind, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always writing about, in both books, and people who are, are kind of on a margin of some sort. And and so the ways in which the world deals with those people um, is is always kind of a, a focus of mine. So
0: this is the perfect segue to talk about ARC. So I want to be clear, this book is set in Philadelphia. Um, You were from Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. And the MOVE bombing, um, the horrific incident that happened in Philadelphia is like burned into my childhood watching Mayor Wilson Good, our first black mayor, bomb that house, right? I smelled it for weeks. I feel like I can still smell it. And you touch on MOVE through ARC in the book. And I wanted to ask you how much you thought of those parallels as you were writing.
1: Quite a bit. Um, it's, I think it's important to say that I, that ARC isn't MOVE. You know, that's such a, you know, MOVE actually still exists. The, the organization still exists. Um, and, and what happened on Mother's Day in 1985, the bombing, um, which killed 11 people, five of them children, um, is still a raw wound in the city. So I, I didn't want to presume to tell that story. But 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 I think ARC is a kind of homage um, to that history, and well, actually I, I think I misspe- misspeak to call it history. It is a historical event that still has very deep reverberations and things to say about the present. Um, so I and and I also was interested in in exploring questions that came up for me around move. So there's the the obvious questions like how did this happen. Why would it be that if a group of black people attempt to kind of create an autonomous living situation that's a little bit different from the ways that other people live, even if and it's complicated, right? Move weren't great neighbors, actually, you know, they were kind of a menace, but that doesn't mean that you should bomb them and kill their children. Right. You know (laughs) what I mean? So 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 the questions also are, well what are the complications in that kind of sort of utopic attempt to live autonomously and independently and to have freedom economically and otherwise, and racially? Um, why is that met with outsized police violence? Why for the people that lived on that block next to move, and now I'll move it back to Ark into my book specifically, if those folks have bones to pick, with that group that's on the block, which they justifiably did, they really weren't great neighbors. What sort of position does that put these people in the block in, in which they say, hey, you know, community board, hey, police, hey, whoever, can you help us? And then the police response ends up with them losing all of their homes, too. You know, I mean, it's it's um, so it's a lot of questions about about state response and state violence. um, And it's also questions about what does an attempt at a Black utopia look like? In very practical ways, it's also a question that's being asked in Bonaparte, which is also an attempt at a kind of a Black utopia. You know, How do you, how do you feed yourself? How do you keep the lights on? What do you do about the kid's education? What are the threats? Internally too, right? Like there's a lot of personalities, right? And, and not all of them are conducive to community building, even though they want to build a community. Um, not all of these people are noble heroes. Cass himself is really not a great guy. Um, he's, he's, and that's probably putting it mildly. Um, so, you know, what sorts of what's of what sorts of threats exist internally, and then also what sorts of threats exist externally. And I think that move for me, you know, I was maybe twelve or so when it happened, um, and we didn't really talk about it in my family at all. I said I knew that something really horrible. And very wrong it happened. And but I didn't have a way to think about it or a vocabulary for thinking about it until much later, probably until I got to college. And I sort of started reading about, you know, African American studies and reading about, you know, sort of poli sci stuff and things like that, trying to understand what happened there. And then I, I got a vocabulary for it. Um, and so I think in many ways this, that part of this book is, is an attempt to kind of write my way into some of those questions.
0: You know, it's strange because if you grew up in Philadelphia, like we did, move was something that we didn't really talk about. We knew it was happening. We saw it on the news, right? But no one talked about the children that were shot. The extreme number, like thousands of bullets, thousands of rounds of bullets piled into this house, right? Mm -hmm. The, The response was Absurd, horrific. It was a disaster. And we never talked about it in Philadelphia. And people outside of Philadelphia have never heard of it. And yeah. and how is that possible? And so I was so—to um, see you trying to broach it in this book was a relief that I cannot even describe— <laughs> And I know ARC is not MOVE and there are differences, but this question of how do you write about MOVE and what happened and the number of failures that led up to that bombing of our own people in our own city, right? How do you write about that? I feel like for the first time I saw that in your novel and I wanted to thank you for putting that in there.
1: Oh, thank you. What an extraordinary thing to say. Yeah, thank you. But I mean, have you felt
0: that? Did you feel that, like, we don't talk about this in Philadelphia? And then did you sit down, like, how do I write about this?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, it it was really difficult. The You know, it went through, well, the whole book did, but um, certainly it went through a lot of iterations. I mean, I knew more or less how it would end even before I kind of knew a lot about other parts of the book. Um, But the difficulty, I think, was in trying to approach that approach move and approach what happened there without recreating it without disrespecting it um without reducing it to a sort of a or or being opportunistic about it you know sort of like well i've taken this story and i'm gonna put it in my novel you know um so there was a lot of that was really really difficult um i hope i've succeeded i don't know um but but it was my hope to sort of create a narrative like a very much a fictional narrative that was separate from that that would maybe allow me to address those questions and address what happened there without disrespecting that history um or or sort of rewriting it I suppose and the other thing I think that was really difficult is you know I I touched on it um a couple of minutes ago is that you know it's really complicated right like uh, these folks are not necessarily heroes, you know what i mean? Cass, the 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 leader of Ark in the novel, he's right about a lot of stuff. I mean, he's right about a need for autonomy. He's right about a need for freedom. He's a doctor and um and so he sort of starts this free clinic. And he's right about, you know, this these these health these immense healthcare deficits in black communities and he's trying to address them. He's right about all that stuff. At the same time, he's He's a narcissistic egomaniac, you know, he's um, he's duplicitous. His motives are questionable, you know, so this whole sort of subject and realm of thing without creating heroes or villains, exactly kind of giving these people nuances that were really complicated. I mean, he's a little bit of a paradox, I think, in some ways Um, that was that was a Really difficult process that just kind of took a lot of writing and rewriting it, and kind of adding little bits to sort of understand him a little more, and understand him a little more, and understand him a little more.
0: Like you said, you make it clear that Ark, um, they're compound. They're not great neighbors. You wouldn't want to be next to them, right? They have rats in there. Uh, And their garbage and their compost, the garden is falling down, right? They're like boarding up their doors and windows and they're, you know, doing these neighborhood watches. They've got, you know, they're right. It's they're not you don't want your kids playing next door to this. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a right to live there and make those choices that that's how they want to live. And so you point out that how does the system, the government, right, make it so that you can exist like, you know, ARC does or like MOVE did and have neighbors next door that can exist how they want to live. How do you yeah. create that peace without, you know, blowing up the house? And I mean that literally.
1: Right. I think one of the things that happens in the book, which I'm thinking about now, is that, you know, sort of every time the government e- intervenes, something bad happens. You know, like in Bonaparte, for example, you know, as I mentioned, that that community had existed since well before the Civil War. And then they get these deeds, you know, because that the government gives them in the 1930s, something like that in Bonaparte. And, and Duchess herself comments on the fact that that once that happened, some sort of bar- bargain was struck with the state that over it took decades, but that eventually led to their downfall in a certain way. And I think also in a very different way in ARC when the state becomes involved um, and the state is sort of called upon by their neighbors because it's not that great to live next to Ark, they have, you know, they have no sense that that's what's gonna happen. You know, that, 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 that what the state does is what the state is going to do. But the point is when, when it intervenes, something really dreadful always happens that, that in both of these communities in this book mean the end.
0: You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Diana Mathis. We're talking about her new novel, The Unsettled. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Ayana Mathis, and we are talking about her brand new novel, The Unsettled. You are listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. Ayana, we were just talking about ARC and the uh, similarities that it is based on MOVE in Philadelphia. Um, And we were also talking about mental illness and the characters in this book, how a number of them are touched by mental illness, depression, they have, right, issues. Um, and I wanted to ask you on a personal level, I understand that your own mother um, struggled with mental illness. And how did you draw on that? And or did you draw on that and bring that into the novel? Um, and into I mean, your writing? probably
1: in some very tangential way. I mean, I think that I think that personal experience so often, it kind of goes inside and it sort of goes through this process of of memory and narrative making like we all do right about about all of our memories and our personal lives and then it kind of comes out on the other side as something else um so perhaps not something that's direct but that is informed by in some kind of way the other thing i think that's relevant to your question is that you know unless sometimes you're writing memoir i think when you're writing fiction at least for me um, to try to translate my personal experience very directly, it doesn't work. Sort of, it has to kind of come channeled through a character, and become something that's very different from my own experience. Otherwise, the writing I find is sort of flat, nuanced. You know, I'm not—I'm not a memoirist, I guess—is what I've discovered about myself, right? <laughs> um, and so, so I very much am dependent upon these characters and their psychologies and their proclivities and their trajectories to kind of bring things to life um, and to sort of take me away from my own personal experience in a certain way so that I can write something that may be drawing upon or calling up or reminiscent of, but is ultimately very different.
0: You know, I think you actually uh, write something like that in the book, Uh, one of your sentences you wrote, Ava never cared what was real and what wasn't. She would make up a story and live in it and screw everybody else. Right. And this idea that you're you're making up this world and you're going to live in it. And maybe you touch on something from your real life, but screw it. Right. This is what I'm writing about. And I love that in that book and you that you gave it to that character.
1: Yeah. It's, I, right. It's so interesting. You know, it's like sometimes you I find I'm sort of stuck and I'm like or I think, oh, I have a thing that I myself would like to say in a very direct way. And so then you just sort of give it to them. <laughs> and let them say, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it can feel like a real intrusion, but sometimes it works and it's and it's uh, it's very satisfying as a writer. So uh, you
0: told us that you came to writing a little bit later in life to writing fiction, right? Your first book published when you were 39, 40. Um, so do you think that, you know, how do you
1: think your experience before that really is
0: reflected in your writing?
1: Well, I think I had a lot of years of living um and a lot of years of like I'm don't think that I could have written Hattie the the first book when I was 28 or something I, I just don't think I could have um and that's not necessarily so much about skill as a writer but just as about which I wouldn't have had at that point either um but I but I think it's more about just sort of life experience I mean you know reading I mean writing rather it really begins with thinking to my mind, you know, it's it's um, that's the, the first thing. So I had a lot more years to live and think and be in the world and watch people and have my own heartbreaks and disappointments and confusions and all of that sort of stuff. And that really kind of goes into into the book and, and a certain set of experiences, you know, I mean, I as you mentioned, um, maybe at the top of the hour that I worked in magazines, which I did. Um, for many years and um, and also that I wrote poetry and and so on just a sort of purely kind of technical level, both of those things teach you a great in different ways, but both of those things teach you a lot about precision um, in language. Um, about specificity, about the importance of, of being succinct, which sounds funny coming from me because I know I have these sort of long flights of point of view, you know, what have you. But um, I'm, I'm re- very digressive as a writer, I think, by nature in some ways. But um, the incredible training ground in terms of precision of language, like what is important, discerning, like, what is the nut here, you know, like and, and, and what is not. Um, so those... in in terms of kind of practical life experience, those things helped quite a bit, I think.
0: So your first novel came out, like we said, when you were 39, 40 years old, and then your second novel has come out 11 years later. Um, But a lot of writers really feel pressure to publish, to produce, right, to have stuff going out there. Um, And you are the opposite of that. You produce these two beautiful novels, right, as opposed to just pushing out a short story every whatever, a few months or whatever. So what advice do you give to people who feel this pressure, feel like they have to publish?
1: I think things take the time that they take. Um, And I'm very fortunate. You know, my my editor thinks the same thing. So I was very fortunate in that that she, you know, my book was like uh, three years late, something like that. Um, you know, I try to cut myself a little slack because in the middle of that, there was a pandemic and a, and a very turbulent presidency. <laughs> um, so I'll leave it at that. But um, we, and it, I was very slow in those years and, some, and sometimes just stopped in those years. So um, but back to your question, things take the time that they take. And and I think, you know, you you can have a fast book or you can have a good book. Um, and, and, and once in a while you get lucky and it's fast and good, but if you don't, you don't. Um, and, and so that's, I think that's what some of the advice I would give. And the other thing I would say is that there are other ways to be, um, writing if you're working on a big fictional project and you're wanting to do something else. You know, I write a lot for the New York Times. Right now I'm, I'm in the midst of a, a series called Imprinted by Belief, which is about, Fiction and Religion, it's about a year-long series of essays for the New York Times, and, and I write a lot of book reviews, et cetera, and other essays. So there are other ways in which my writing self could be engaged and could get the uh, sort of satisfaction of producing something. I mean, working on a novel for a long time is hard also because it's, there's no gratification. It's like, when you, you know, when is this ever going to be done? You know, And, and that, can, that can feel really difficult. And so for me, sometimes writing shorter nonfiction pieces is a way to kind of be like, I started it, and then a month later, I was done. It's it's very satisfying and wooing and kind of keeps you going. And it also engages your mind in a very different way. You know, you're having to think about things, read things that that I think are also kind of replenishing the well as you go along to kind of give you energy and fodder for whatever that longer project you might be working on is, even if it's taking forever and ever.
0: So are you using different parts of your brain when you're doing nonfiction writing, right, for the New York Times versus when you're doing your your novel? I think I am.
1: I think um, the nonfiction pieces require a much more kind of analytic function, you know. Um, They kind of, I I enjoy them because they sort of feel like they're putting a, putting a thought puzzle together, right? Like there's this sort of series of ideas that you that I'm chasing down and trying to link together. So it's a much more heady kind of, into, like it's an intellect forward kind of experience of writing that also requires research and reading and things like that, as opposed to writing fiction, which I think is sort of intuition psyche forward, um, even though it is, certainly an intellectual activity, but I mean, I don't, for me, that can't be what it leads with because I will think myself right out of a paragraph, you know, like if I'm, if I'm, if I'm attempting to be super heady about fiction, I cannot write it. That, that heady executive function thing, that has to come back in later in the editing process. It cannot be, it cannot lead the generating writing part of it.
0: So what kind of advice do you have for new writers, people who are just trying to get out there and get started?
1: I think it's it's all it's very basic. Um, The first is write a lot. Um, And to not be afraid of the messiness of what first comes out. I think part of the terror sometimes for people as they're setting up and establishing a writing practice is that. You, you sort of, you, you, most writers are readers first, right? So you've read all of these books. And, but the thing to remember is that all of these books have been edited, written, rewritten, etc. cetera. And so then you sit down and this just crap comes out, right? It's just horrible stuff comes out. And you judge it according to the standard of all these things that are sitting on your bookshelf or, you know, in your, in your e-reader or whatever, right? Which is a totally unfair standard. Um, you know, I love revision and it, it, so it it saves us. It's the chance to make everything better. So embrace revision is one of the things I always say to, to, to writers who are kind of beginning and the other thing is read, read and read and read and read and read.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for
1: all of your time and all of your thoughts. It was my great pleasure. Thank you very much. And good luck with the show and congratulations.
0: You've been listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today was Ayanna Mathis, and we were talking about her brand new book, The Unsettled. If you want to hear more on this episode or other episodes, you can go to nhpr.org or thehow.org. This show is brought to you through a partnership between the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, and NHPR. Our producers today are Jared Jenish, Megan Coleman, and NHPR's Emily Quirk. The Howe Library director is Ruby Simon. NHPR's program director is Emily Quirk. The show is sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation and the Howe Library Corporation. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next time with my guest, Emma Torge. We will be talking about her book, Ink, Blood, Sister, Scribe. Go to your local library and check it out. Thank you.